Hi, I'm Dr. Selena Matthews, spiritual psychologist, and I want to welcome you all to Soul Transformation. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Slattery. He's an emeritus professor, scholar, author, and poet. Our topic today, which is absolutely fascinating, is called Hauntings, the Interface of the Visible, Invisible, and Unseen Worlds. Now, we are all being haunted by the images we see from Israel, Palestine, and the Ukraine. We are actually all going through a collective traumatic experience. In this podcast, we are going to explore how these traumas and hauntings manifest personally, culturally, and on the world stage. I want you all to stay tuned because this is going to be an amazing and thought-provoking discussion. Extraordinaire. Thank you so much, Dennis, for coming on the show again. Uh, we loved your last one, and we're so happy to have you back. So I'd like to begin our discussion with the world stage, what's happening in Israel, the Palestine, and the Ukraine, and the horrific hauntings that we are all having from the experience. And to follow that up, I wanted to ask you, what myth has taken hold of the world today that we are experiencing that? Right. And is it reflective of what? Yes. Well, <clears throat> it's been a few days now, but I remember hearing, you know, as soon as you, as soon as we bring up the topic of hauntings, we can more often hear the word being used. Uh, it's a felt sense. Something gets activated. A field. Uh, and a, a field of uh, haunting. And um, it was a comment by one of the Israeli uh, political figures. It might have been Netanyahu himself, who said, we are haunted. Uh, this was um, October 7th. Yes. We are haunted as a nation that we missed Hamas building this killing machine within a mile of us, and we never saw it. And I thought, boy, are you using the right word? And perhaps you should be haunted by the fact that you, someone fell asleep at the switch. So that haunting then comes also, um, with so little that most of us know about the Palestinians, uh, Egypt, Israel, um, and the long history that has haunted them and kept them from coalescing in some way. And Selena, I draw a, I draw a straight line to our own Congress who is haunted by chaos. Uh, by uh, self-interest, by the most outrageous anti-Semitic uh, language within them, and then the universities in the United States that have exploded with anti-Semitic um, language, uh, behavior. So <clears throat> I have a poem by W.B. Yeats that I'd like to share with you and the audience at this point, because I think it captures something 
that Yates captured uh, two years after the First World War had ended. And it's probably wow. one of his most famous poems entitled The Second Coming. It's a haunting poem. And I thought, and it's a short poem, it's 20 lines, but it is so powerful for our topic. And if you'll allow me, I'll read it now. Of course. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, and the worst are full of passionate intensity. And then uh, Yeats has a gap, and then the, the final part of the poem. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image of the Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 years, I beg your pardon, the 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And then this question at the end, which chills me even as I'm getting ready to read it. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Oh, my God. So right after the First World War, which nobody believed would ever happen, happened. And this is the aftershock of Yeats. And I, read an, I wrote an op-ed piece on this that was published a week or two ago because I, I said this poem Yeats could have written last Thursday. Correct. Given today's atmosphere, the, uh, the, the vindictiveness, the, but what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Not Christ in the second coming, but this beast. And so it's maybe part of what we're wanting to speak about today is the the, the haunting quality of the beast that can't be named, but it's on the move. It's an archetypal presence, and it's monstrous, and it's growing up right among us now. And when I say us, I think it's global. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah I agree with you. I think it's a global. Is it coming from an archetypal energy that you can connect it to? I, I think it is. And, you know, I read it, uh, but I'd like to back up and answer the question that you posed. And I'll skip over where I have uh, it marked to, to uh, read. Here's what I see. We're locked into the myth of grievance. The myth that says that an eye for an eye is justice in its narrow and restrictive form. <clears throat> Second, I think we're in the myth of suppression, repression that diminishes the integrity of an entire people. This takes us back to the Israelis, the Palestinians, but globally, uh, our own- The Ukrainians? The, the Ukrainians, Ukrainians, our own black population, an entire race, um, and their history. And I think, Selena, the myth of forgetfulness is part of the current uh, zeitgeist, if you will. Um, wipe X off the face of the earth. Diminish as a human being this class of people. And finally, the tyrannical tyrannical myth of the oppressor who has put himself in the place of God and will dispense fiats that please his personal goals. These are some of the mythologies, sometimes in conflict, sometimes in accord with one another. Yeats's poem shows us just how deep this haunting mythology is. It offers a mythopoetic truth of what is again unleashed and prowls the world today, metastasizing as it journeys. The dangers inherent in these myths is their tyrannical literalizing of history and its discontents, and then I wrote in this this afternoon when I was reading uh, this over, or ignoring history because its truth does not fit with one's uh, narcissistic agenda. And so history itself can be a haunting presence for some that needs to be whitewashed, uh, distorted out of its... Uh, out of its truth, yeah. So that's that's where I am in answering that first question. So there are several mythologies at work um, that are not all negative, because I think there are counter myths of um, uh, aiding the Ukrainian people, of aiding uh, Israel of uh, trying to find some hope for the people in Gaza who are just being bombed, men, women, and children, and all under the rubric of, well, we're seeking justice. And it's, it's as primal a response as the human race, uh, as old as the human race itself. Yeah. 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 
Wow. Th- th- that's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And I appreciate, it's, I mean, the, not only the invitation, lot. but the, the freedom that you always give me to just yeah. move around with an idea and not necessarily try to prove anything, but but to put out some language into the public sphere that can be worked with, changed, yeah. modified. Yeah. So if we look at this one, we unpack hauntings in some way, and we look at the question, who is in charge of our lives? Yeah. Is, is, is it our culture? Is it our experience? Is it the in- invisible, unconscious processes that we interface with? Who's in charge? Yeah. Like, how does that interface with hauntings? Can you extrapolate on all of that? Yeah, thank you. I think you offer here in that question, because I've typed things out on many of the questions, not all of them. Uh, we'd be here till, I don't know, Saturday afternoon, which wouldn't be a bad thing, but that's where we'd be. But I think you offer us here, Selena, a smorgasbord of possibilities that are all active today. There exists a manic obsession in the world today that cannot be escaped. It simply is. That is the competition of being in charge, a secular version of an earlier assertion or sense of being called by God, which is often wrapped in religious language to gain further credibility, if not power, and to be in charge. Um, Yes, worlds seen and unseen, worlds understood or not, or misunderstood. Depending on the myth one chooses to see by means of. Which leads me to just make this comment about myth, because it's it's underpinning the, the entire conversation and the entire culture. Myths are as much attitudes, to my mind, as anything else. Myths are feeling responses to our lives. We carry in our storied history haunts that may surface at various stages of our development and recur. And I sense that the unconscious self, we are also, we are also surfaces in many forms as we age. Lately, I've been remembering events in my early childhood that I had forgotten for decades. Now, at age 79, as of uh, two weeks ago, I feel ripe and open enough to receive their haunting presences. I couldn't have done it 10 years ago, and I didn't do it 10 years ago. Not as memories to crush me, but haunting memories to open me to the mystery in myself. And I go with Jim Hellman on this, and, and Jung as well. The idea that we have a self is just not mm, faithful maybe to the experiences that we have, that there are many selves absorbing this or that or responding to them all the time. 
So I use the plural. So these mysteries in myself that I had not been privy to or wanted to be are surfacing now at this period in my life. And I'm not unique uh, in this. No, no. No, you're, no. Uh, no, I, I think that's, I think that even myself, I'm coming to that place, you know, my, myself, because there's, you can do all this psychological work, you can do the dream work, and then all of a sudden something else happens. You can't put your finger on it, sometimes for decades, you know, right. it just, it, 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 it moves, it kind of moves. It's like the invisible mover. Yes. Uh, it, it's, yes. it's, it's, it's very, very different. Yes. It's a different experience. In your words, what are hauntings? Like, yeah, how, really would you, great. how would you describe the hauntings? Yeah, it's hard, but it's, 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 uh, because it's hard, it's worth trying to describe. Yeah. So thank you for the basic question that underlies all of what we're talking about today. So a few things. Hauntings are archetypal for they carry some universal energy in them that is particular to our own history, which doesn't mean that it can't be particular to a larger history that each of us is, you know, ensnared in, uh, woven uh, into. Um, they can include what they, they can include. Um, I want to pose this as a question. What is it? that I wrestled with in the dark. And see, that'd be, a, 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 I think, a valuable, uh, it could be useful as a writing meditation. What or who do I wrestle with in the dark? I think it's going to, uh, the answer to that is going to be something that haunts us. And we wrestle with it, like a figure, like Jacob with the angel. Yeah. Um, let me say a few other things, if, if I may. They yeah, can, as I consider hauntings further, hauntings can be blessings. See, I don't want to load the deck that what haunts us um, is always negative, because I think we can be haunted by beauty. You know, for the, for the years that Sandy and I lived in Rome, we probably, in taking care of the university business, I was teaching for the University of Dallas uh, there for two years and directing the program. We'd walk across St. Peter's Square. Oh, in the two years, we were there hundreds of times. This is 1976 to 1978. And I remember so often I'd look at her and say, shall we go in and see the Pieta? And say, yeah. now this is before you had to have reservations, lines, everything. St. Peter's was just open. We'd walk in, and this is when the P, uh, Michelangelo's Pieta wasn't pushed against the wall or behind plexiglass after somebody attacked it a long time ago. And we'd walk around it, and it was like a meditation. It was like praying. And we would look at that marble, and then we'd walk out and uh, take care of the business or, or having a meal in town. And that image of the Pieta, that image of beauty, haunts us today because it shaped something in us. 
uh, over the and we had the beauty of the repetition and the freedom. Just to, and I think people have a painting, a piece of music, uh, uh, another sculpture, and a piece of architecture that haunts them with their with its beauty. Yeah. Yeah. So no. Uh, yeah. So they can be blessings, openings. Um, I want to leave room for hauntings to be guests rather than invaders. And haunting creates tensions in us that are not necessarily destructive if we have a vision wide enough and wise enough to accept them in the spirit of a host entertaining a formidable guest. Even an ornery or contentious guest, one who wants to behave outside the boundaries of our familiar lives. And I think, Selena, hauntings push those boundaries that we are so comfortable in uh, and shatters it, puts cracks in it, pushes the boundaries out further, and suddenly we're awakened to why why is that dream coming back again and again? Or why am I continuing to hear this um, comment made by somebody that was not very flattering or uh, positive? And then it breaks us open. That's the side that I'm finding more and more mysterious about hauntings. So that um, th this action can shake us up it can shake us down and can wake us up. Uh, especially when uh, the note that the guest has pinned to its shirt is full of long hid hidden reprisals, reprimands, recriminations. This is the, this, now this is, these are the beasts that are slouching towards Bethlehem on a personal level, uh, which is another reason that Yeats's poem just, how howled at me uh, to be recognized again. Can we, in these very uncomfortable moments, not identify fully and so be pulled back into a history that is destructive and paralyzing? And I pose that as a question. Compassion for our haunting ghost is one powerful and human response to parts of our history that have remained disremembered and unaccounted for. That line I'm stealing from the last paragraph of Toni Morrison's magnificent novel, Beloved, which I propose is one of the most haunting works of fiction of the modern era. Wow. It is a poetic, and not just the hauntings of Setha for having tried to kill her four children and succeeds in killing one who comes back and haunts her uh, for 18 years. It comes back when she is 18 years old, she comes out of the water and haunts Setha. Um, it, it's just magnificent. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> literature is filled 
with hauntings. And while I was thinking about talking with you, and I'd thought about it a bit before, and I don't have the list in front of me, I began to think of the, the literary works that I'm familiar with, back uh, to Inanna and all the way up to Toni Morrison. Hauntings, haunting, being haunted, seems to be the primary impetus to get a character moving. And I'd never thought about that, but it really is remarkable how haunting and then trying to deal with this haunting has given us some of the greatest classical plot lines in world literature, not just American literature. And I found that astonishing. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be exciting to write even an article for a, a journal on, on the, the central place of being haunted as the uh, uh, provocateur of the action of the novel or a short story or a poem? as uh, Yeats is. Anyhow, that's a little no, aside, uh, but please. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I that, That's just absolutely brilliant, of course, as you are. <laughs> I never thought of it from that perspective, but wow. Yeah, I mean, or in, you know, in my practice, we're please. all haunted. Yes. I have, you know, people who are haunted by cancer, haunted by Parkinson's, haunted by their malignant narcissistic parents, haunted by addiction. There's there's all of all of these things. People are haunted in so many ways, haunted by their ex husband. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, by abuse. I mean it can go it can go in many in many ways. But I, I think I want to go to there's four different kinds and that you and I have talked about categories of hauntings. But uh, we talked about um, the trauma. We talked about the personal story. We talked about the country of origin because people from America are going to have a different um, haunting than the people from the Ukraine or Israel or Palestine and the world stage. So why don't you pick one of those? Yeah, <laughs> whichever one you want, and no. and 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 let's, you know, work through some of the the different the different aspects. So which one would you like to? Well, the one with? that I the one that I wrote about, <clears throat> and all of them that you proposed are excellent, but I knew I couldn't handle handle all of it, so I chose trauma. As, okay, a, good. as right. one to, to enter. And here's a few here's a few reflections on it. Maybe because it's closer to me than the others. <clears throat> it it um, is uh, more intimate with my story. Um, I've I've written about this after years of denying that it was part of my past, as well as the traumatic past of my three brothers and sister uh, growing up in a violent alcoholic fuel alcoholic fuel household with my father's addiction. So I'm giving the personal, <clears throat> I know you had it closer to the end, but it seemed to fit here. And it can come yeah. back, I think I do come back to it, but uh, this was revelatory. <clears throat> For decades, <clears throat> I could not speak about it. 
and fought not to remember it. But the hauntings of various scenes up to my 18th birthday were powerful, persistent, and poisonous. Last year, I presented this trauma to a group, and it was a watershed moment for me. And you know this better than I do, Selena, <clears throat> that when one is allowed to give language to something that's been repressed, or it's it's trying to seep out, but it's it can't, um, that it can be revelatory. <clears throat> and this is what happened. Um, the shame was still present. In fact, in writing it, I discovered something that was earth-shaking for me. <clears throat> I learned that my father's addiction and his violence on weekends to explode into the world with us catching the shrapnel from these war zones every weekend for decades had shaped in me deeply the myth of scarcity. And accompanying it, feelings of not good enough, not done enough, do more. Um, I led a frenzied creative life trying to measure up, and then the question hit me, but to whose standard? I had never asked that question. Measured up to who? So, here's how it manifested in daily life, which I think is where the, the action is, in the ordinary habits that, uh, that um, begin to coalesce around a haunting. Um, and I think the audience might find it um, uh, both humorous and probably close to home for many of them. So both. Um, there it is. When I began driving um, at age 16, Oh wait, I'm sorry. I let off. I left off something. I'd like to have a part of this. I know I have skipped to where we were headed, but it feels fitting right here to narrate it. Now, how much of this narrative is historical? I can't tell. But all of it is hysterical, in the sense that a form of hysteria accompanied me in my PTSD. Wow. Yeah. When I began driving at age 16, I was unable to fill the gas tank above one quarter full, filling it from my position of scarcity was an obscenity, from my traumatized and belittled perspective. I had confused filling the tank with excess. That's how powerful the myth had me. From a condition of scarcity, abundance feels like prohibited excess. That was huge for me as well. 
from a from a perspective of scarcity, what is abundant looks like excess. Because I can't imagine from the shriveled imagination of scarcity what abundance could be like without tagging it. This is excessive. This is out of my boundaries. My wife, when we began dating, witnessed this behavior and insisted I fill the tank. I did with a shaking hand on the gas station hose, but I did it. Shame's haunting spilled out to my feelings that I was living one-fourth of my life, but fearful of stepping into the other three-quarter fraction. I was living a fractioned life, and I was living a fractured life at the same time. The power of haunting, I, I, I don't think, can be measured in its capacity. I had, here's another example of how scarcity lived itself out. I had good ideas in my undergrad days and graduate classes, but would not gather the courage to speak out. I think I was haunted by what my voice and ideas would sound like if uttered publicly. Then my Irish anger kicked in when I continued to hear other students voicing what I was thinking and were praised for it. I too wanted to be witness even in my scarcity, but shame kept me a silent hostage. Being haunted into silence is a dramatic form of being invisible. And it's one of the worst ghosts in the arsenal of hauntings. Feeling shame at not being witnessed or acknowledged manufactures more shame and further silence. Over time, I believe, it can lead to feelings of incompleteness because of not having lived the life one felt compelled to enter and travel in with at least some confidence. Yeah. And the next thing I write about, but I'd like to pause here, is the topic of mass shootings. Yeah, that would be that would be great. Yeah. Shall, shall I go ahead? Yeah, I'll go right into mass shootings because we just had one recently in Maine. Yes, and um, I passed the television set last week, and um, Sandy was watching um, a national show, and the uh, commentator. The newsman was um, ticking off uh, this mass shooting, this mass shooting, this mass shooting. One of them was in Texas. So at least five. And I said to, I asked Sandy, what 
what period of time are we talking about? Is this the last five months? She said, all of these happened last weekend. I could not grasp it. Yeah. It is so out of control in this country. I, I think it's over 500. I, I don't know the exact amount already. And we're, you know, uh, it's, it's shocking that nothing is being done on this regard. People are trying, but it's the needles not be not being able to move. What has to happen for that needle to move? That is that is what I keep on looking. What is the straw that breaks the the camel's back that moves that moves the needle? I don't know. I have no idea, Dennis, because I thought the needle should have moved a long time ago. You bet. Yes, and. Uh, Selena, <clears throat> you say that eloquently, and my feeling is, and this this dread haunts me, nothing will move it. Nothing will move it. It's almost like um, another version of Sartre's play, No Exit. Once you're in, there is no, there is no way out. And that's terrifying. And this is another... That is terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. So yeah, just definitely. a couple of... Ref no, please. No, no. And, uh, that is terrifying to think that we are in a no exit with guns. That is haunting me right now. I'm being haunted by that image that there is no exit here. Because I think of these beautiful lives that are, you know, gunned down. The, the damage... And, and the damage seems to be okay in the American culture. Because if the American culture made different choices, then there would, there would be, a, the needle would move a certain direction, right? Agreed. It, Agreed. It, is, it, is, it is within our culture. This Something has to shift within our culture in order for this to move. Otherwise, nothing's going to move. And I think you're right. There's no exit. There's no exit right now. But I, I have to believe that there will be one day, because I don't know if I could function, honestly, that this is going to continue. I can go to Ralph's tomorrow, and I'm aware that I could go to Ralph's and there could be a shooting. There, there are, in Los Angeles, where I live, there are guards at, at, at each of the entrances with their big guns at Ralph's, just going in to get whatever I need in terms of groceries. So we're living with it, and we're living with this kind of presence. Yes. Uh, and not only that, the smash and grab, I don't know if smash and grab has gotten you in Texas yet, but smash and grab is where they go into Macy's and they smash the windows, go in and pull out all these things. It's called smash yeah. and grab. So now, when I go just down the street where I live to CVS, all the things that people purchase, like Tide and all of that, it's all under lock and key. Oh my! No God. more can you go into a grocery store without asking, "Can I go? Like, can I go get my Tide, please?" Uh, you know, they have to go there. They have to get the keys. They have to unlock it, and they have to give it to me. Oh my gosh. So smash and grab is really big in California. I'm not sure where, it, but that's what it's called, smash and grab. And it's happening Macy's, Ralph's, everywhere. Everything's locked up now. It's 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 
So even going to a grocery store and seeing the gun security guards is haunting on a smaller level, but it's haunting that we can't go to a grocery store without armed guards there. Yes. You know, there's an, there's an analog to uh, what you're saying that I saw, oh, I don't know, maybe two hours ago on the news. A group of Jewish women in uh, oh, Massachusetts, I, I, I can't remember, but here in the United States, um, a group of them signed up uh, to buy pistols and to learn to shoot their new pistols um, by a professional because their feeling is, as you just said, going to Ralph's and there could be a shooter on aisle four, these women feel, you know, somebody can attack me on the street when I'm picking up my child or going to the grocery store and I cannot live with that fear. And so what happens? Now here are four or five women, and this is a, 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 a group that uh, is multiplied as the uh, anti-Semitic uh, violence continues, um, perpetuating the gun culture. And understandably, and yet this is this is what they feel in their desperation is at least some power that they can wield over these um, uh, diminishing uh, attacks on them, uh, diminishing them as a, as a human being. And they're, they're in a state of uh, shock and disbelief and how quickly this anti-Semitic violence has metastasized and growing um, uh, leaps and bounds. So yeah, that I is just, a vicious circle. Yeah, yeah I just saw, uh, uh, you know, that it's up since uh, since October the or, or no, yeah, I think October the seventh when the Israeli Hamas war started. It's up by 335% anti-Semitism. And I'm like, are, like, like everywhere, like that's incredible, 335%. I was shocked at that yes. because that's, that's such an intensity. Um, and, and I, I think about, I, I want to share, uh, a, you know, a specific thing right now. I had a, a client that was, uh, and I want to share the other side of a haunting. Um, so I had a client that was having a major depressive disorder, and, and she has homes in, 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 in Los Angeles and in Israel. And, uh, she, you know, so she was quite depressed. And uh, she went to Israel, of course. We weren't sure how she was going to do. But anyway, the war started when she was there. The woman that left to Israel and the woman that came back were completely two different women. The woman that came back was one of spectacular resilience. Like there was no major depression. 
there's no there was the resilience of the human spirit that I have never seen before. She said, Selena, evil's everywhere. I'm not a victim. I'm like, it, I felt like I got a teaching from my client. Yes. And I, I was blown away at her resilience and power and, you know, engagement from the depressed woman to the potent woman in the snap of a finger. Yeah. Uh, I, I was in awe of her. And that also lives within the, the Jewish culture. They have that because they've been persecuted for millennia. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So a haunting can be also a transformation. Absolutely. And that's, uh, your example is a beautiful illustration that hauntings have many faces. And it's where one is in, in his or her life and world and how one wants to work with the hauntings that makes all the difference. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and it's a choice. And people have got to stay out of the victim. As soon as people yes. go, I'm victimized, my culture is victimized, yes. it's over. It's they over. are then, they lose their power. Yes. But when they flip the switch, because now I've, I've seen how the switch is flipped, you know, I've heard about it. I've never, I mean, I've seen people do little switches, but not not like this, N not in two weeks from no. major depression into, you know, a powerhouse. Yes. No, that, that does not occur psychologically ever. So, um, yeah. And yeah. was it in part, in your mind, the compression? You know, it's like the difference between a 200-page a novel and a 21-line poem that brought her in just two weeks into a major transformation because of that world that she had entered uh, in Israel. That's where she went. Yeah. 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 She was, in, she was in, in Jerusalem. Yep. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, yep. So when the ball started. Yep. Oh. Yep. And it was like, uh, yeah, it, it was a marvelous, and and it made me believe in the human experience, Dennis, in a way that, you know, just lit me up. I yeah. think, you know, this kind of transformation, we need to educate people about this can happen. Hauntings can be a way for for mir for the miraculous. It was almost yes. like the miraculous yes. for me because this is not this is not normal. It's not normal, but so that's what I wanted to to share. I also want to uh, kind of move on, and okay. you talked about hauntings as a form of self incarceration. Yes. So I wanted to have you uh, talk more on that because uh, we talked a little bit about it, but I I really want you to go into that world. Yes, and I think that ties into, and and I will not. Uh, bring up the mass shootings, but there's a sense in my mind, and you know, we live less than two hours from Uvalde, and Uvalde used oh to be God. a city that Sandy and I would visit, 
it's an elegant uh, city. It's uh, moving towards the border, uh, West Texas. But north of them, north of Uvalde are uh, national campgrounds, uh, state campgrounds. And so we, we used to love visiting Uvalde. We, we can't go, we can't, we can't drive there. It's, it's too, it's still too volatile. And that's one of the markers of uh, the violence. But I wonder, okay. It's still a haunting. It's still a haunting. It's, it's very haunted. It is a haunting that you experience on a daily basis. So if you're having these hauntings, I'm having hauntings. The world is having hauntings. Yes. And the world does not yet know that they're having hauntings. And we have to educate the world that they're having hauntings and how to how to work with these hauntings because the hauntings uh, p can take people down in a minute or they can transform them. That's right. It nice. is a choice. Yeah, no, beautifully said. So hauntings can paralyze us as a nation, uh, as a world leader, as a force for democratic ideals, and for a sense of justice. We can, in confusion, turmoil, and division, see these properties that certain factions on the global stage and our national climate as distortions of our myth that the Constitution provided. And then I say a few things about um, uh, beliefs, and I'm going to skip by it. I'm looking at the clock and just wanting to be careful here. Um, I cited Sally Tisdale uh, in an earlier piece, uh, earlier part of this that I skipped over. But she wrote a piece on memory in the Atlantic uh, October. And this is another insight that I'd like to present from her. Because in the first one, she was saying, what interests me about memory is the rubble in memories. And she mm -hmm. said, as a, as, a, as a therapist and as a writer on culture and memory, I want to pick through the rubble and see what shards and pieces are there and what has what had been fractured and how can we not remember the rubble in Gaza now where it is almost inconceivable to believe these were once buildings people used to live in them okay here's a final haunting um, that can shape and influence humanity and it comes, oh, it's from Proust, but I'm going to skip that. Um, here's the wisdom I want to share with you, and it requires a spiraling back for a moment when I found myself at a loss for what I was doing and becoming, which led me through this wilderness by being called to a spiritual journey that I undertook my first sabbatical in my professional life, courtesy of Pacifica Graduate Institute. Now this was, I didn't know it, but this three and a half months out on the road, traveling from monastery to Zen center to uh, prayer centers, was the psyche trying to liberate itself from its self-incarceration. 
and I didn't know it until I wrote the book. So here's what I want to wow. share. Wow. It, it that's, was, wow. It, and that's about you go on the journey and you, you don't know the magic that will happen, when no. it will happen, or how it will happen. No, yeah. you're exactly right. And yeah. it, it happened because of a book that fell off a bookshelf that had sanctuaries and monasteries in the western half of the United States. And I picked the book up and uh, bought it and then said to Sandy, can we postpone our trip to Ireland so I can make this trip? And she said only one word to me, go. And so I did in uh, August of 98. But here's what happened. Um, not good enough, not done enough, all the incarcerations that I mentioned, these all were shards of the myth I was formulating and being exhausted all the time, and I was 54. Uh, when I pulled my Ford Ranger out of the Goleta house and headed north to the second monastery in Napa Valley, and maybe I'll collapse this, um, so I was the only retreatant there at a Carmelite retreat center uh, right off of uh, 29 through uh, all the uh, vineyards. One evening, I'm sitting on a bench at dusk, and their beautiful German shepherd, Rusty, he followed me everywhere. I was the only act in town, but he was a marvelous. He was, he was a saint on, uh, with four paws. So we're sitting there. And suddenly I feel the presence of my father. And I can feel him right now. He was to my right on the bench. And I was surprised and I wasn't surprised. And he began to talk to me about his shame as an alcoholic and the damage he knew on some level. Never went to an AA meeting in his life but stopped drinking, uh, but still lived out the alcoholic, but without the violence. That was when I was 20. So he, he wanted to talk to me, and I listened. And when he was finished, I said to him, do you want to uh, be my companion on this monastic journey? Because I had uh, three months ahead of me. So I cleared out the, this is how real it was. I cleared out the passenger seat. I was in a Ford Ranger with a fiberglass lid that I could lock. So I put everything in there. And he um, accompanied me in and out for the three months. And I let him talk. And I talked to him. And we reconciled. And um, Tom Moore was uh, generous enough to write the foreword, and he pointed out to me what I had written. He said, the central action of this uh, memoir, spiritual memoir, was Dennis reconciling with his father, who had died two years earlier. And when I read it, and he showed me the rough draft, and he says, will this work for you? 
I said, Tom, not only will it work, but you have explained to me why I took the trip. And so the last piece I want to say, I wrote it, published it, did a book tour, not great, but, you know, young groups and so forth. And I want to tell this story just for the end. I gave a talk on it and read some passages from it, and it was entitled Grace in the Desert, uh, Awakening to the Gifts of Monastic Life. And then I wrote a longer version that had pieces that I had had to edit out uh, uh, three years later. Anyhow, I finished, and uh, people were very uh, appreciative, and I was gathering, I was at the podium, and I was gathering my books and notes, and this woman came up to me, maybe in her 60s, and she was dressed in fall colors, and she had an orange hat and a yellow and a scarf of red. I mean, she was the fall colors of the maples and the oak trees. And she looked at me in the eye and she said, did your father really appear to you? And I said, was my father a living presence to me on that journey? Yes. And she began to weep. And I said, did I say something to you just now that made you weep? She said, no. I haven't spoken to my mother in 15 years. You've given me hope that when she dies, we can have a conversation. And with that, she pivoted. I, I just was in silence, and she walked out. Well, I just have shivers right through my body. It was wow. so remarkable that she's haunted by the fact of the silence over a decade and a half between her and her mother. And my story made her feel maybe after she dies, we can converse. And I tell you, Selena, that moment was worth all the effort writing, finding a publisher, getting that book out. Yeah, Her no, story. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. 1,000%. Yeah. You know, it's uh, just oh. really what, what an exquisite story. What an exquisite journey that was for you oh. to, what a gift that your wife also honored you and said, you need to go on this journey. And, you know, that speaks to your relationship and the, your connection and to her honoring your, your process, which, you know, in today's society, not many people honor the other, the other partner's journey to that level. So I just want to say to your wife, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll tell Sandy. And I did make good a few years later. Oh my God. Wow. What what an amazing gal she is. So oh, um, is. I'm just I'm just gonna say that. So I just tell her Thank she's you. awesome from me. Oh, I, yeah. I I completely agree with you. And I did make good a few years later taking her to Ireland. So okay, we there did you make go. a trip. Yeah. <laughs> We got that trip happening. So the last question uh, 
I want to talk to you about is um, what life wisdom do you want to impart to all of our listeners from this whole topic we've talked about yeah. on hunting? What are the pearls that you want us to get? Yes. You know, I wrote this out. Didn't type it. I wrote this out, and that's oh. what I'm going to read. Okay. When you sense the presence of an earlier ghost, welcome it. Be curious about it. Ask this question. What do you need from me? Because I sense that it that ghost could be seeking some direction to find its proper place in the memory house that is your life. In other words, the ghost may be there seeking from you where it belongs in your history because it's orphaned for whatever reason, a multitude of reasons, but it's looking for its own home in your, in your house because it's part of you in ways that maybe you, at first blush, don't recognize how. But with an attitude of being open to what might this haunting figure want or need from me Number one, it doesn't deprive it of itself. And two, it doesn't make one want to scurry from it or resist it or push it back. That's what I leave uh, the audience today. Yeah, well, they're going to be uh, much more in tune with the ghosts that live in and the hauntings that they have now because of this, uh, you know, journey that, of hauntings that we've been on. I hope. What a what a what an right. incredible what an incredible topic. Uh, I thank you for bringing oh. it up, and I thank your brilliance. I, uh, you know, really so appreciate you. Thank you, Dennis, so much thank for you. participating and being part of this yeah, uh, journey for me. Yeah, and you're framing it. Um, I salute you for. That's one of your many talents, that you can take a topic and frame it in such a way that we can have a rich conversation like we've had today. Yeah, that's a gift that you have. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs>